Roll down the window because it's smelling kind of foul. Sentiment has turned. Investors throwing in the towel. Risk is off the menu. Order something safer. Meme stocks, crypto gains turning into vapor. Feds turning hawkish, having misgivings. I don't want to be no chicken little this close to Thanksgiving, but the ice is feeling thinner than it did last week. Lower lows, weaker highs. The VIX starting to shriek. A new variant on the rise, complicating matters. She sells, he sells, everybody scatters. But we've ridden these tracks. We know how they bend. Never panic, never falter. Adapt and append. These are times of extremes, anxieties, and excess. So lean into these turns on the Investopedia Express. Check your neighbors, check your friends. I told you it would be choppy and chop we got. U.S. equity markets are coming off their worst week since October as concerns about the Omicron variant and mixed economic messages have brought in clouds of uncertainty. And as we know, uncertainty is kryptonite for investors. That's kryptonite, Superman little souvenir from the old hometown. The great Gene Hackman playing Lex Luthor. Sentiment has shifted swiftly inside of just two weeks and the major market averages are in the first healthy pullback we've experienced in over a year. By Friday's close, the Nasdaq was down more than 6% from its 52-week high, the Dow off over 5%, and the S&P just under 5% from its highs of just a few weeks ago. When we open the hood of the Nasdaq composite, it's even worse. 66% of NASDAQ stocks are in a technical bear market, down 20% or more from recent highs, and 35% have fallen more than 50% since their all-time highs. You know the names, DocuSign, Peloton, GameStop, AMC, Robinhood, Activision, Beyond Me, TripAdvisor, and about 535 other stocks dropping at least half of their market value in just the last few months. That's pretty bad market breath and usually not a good sign. The drops are even worse among smaller caps. The Russell 2000 is in a correction, down 10% in the past month. All of a sudden, valuations matter to some investors as the stocks with the highest price-to-sales ratios have been selling off the most. Price-to-sales measures a company's stock price against its revenues. And if you hadn't noticed, we had a lot of lofty stock prices out there while revenue may have peaked across many sectors. But it's not just stocks that are seeing the rush of outflows. The cryptocurrency market has been sell city for the past several days, with Bitcoin's price falling around 40% from its late November highs. It was Bitcoin's third correction of more than 30% this year. In a 24-hour period of selling just this weekend, more than $700 billion was flushed out of the crypto universe in the most violent unwinding of positions since May. Was this end-of-year profit-taking? or the rumblings of a much bigger drawdown in risky assets. We're going to keep an eye on that. The U.S. labor market continues to confound us as well. The November payrolls report released last Friday showed that only 210,000 jobs were added last month. We were estimating at least 550,000 jobs to be added, given the declining weekly unemployment reports and private sector hiring. But that's not what happened at all. At the same time, the unemployment rate fell to 4.2% from 4.6%. Well, how does that happen? Maybe it has something to do with the ancient way the Labor Department gathers data on hiring and unemployment. Let me break it down. The non-farm payrolls report is composed of two surveys, one of households and the other of employers. Each have slightly different questions and definitions of employment. The job gains or losses come from a monthly survey of the payroll records of business establishments that provides data to the Labor Department on employment, hours, and earnings at workers on the national level. The Labor Department surveys 144,000 businesses and government agencies representing about 697,000 work sites across the country, and then it extrapolates a final monthly figure based on those results. 
The unemployment rate, on the other hand, represents the number of unemployed people as a percentage of the labor force, which is the sum of the employed and the unemployed. It's also based on a survey of 60,000 eligible households, and the Labor Department extrapolates a final percentage based on those results. I don't know about you, but there's something about the 21st century workforce that doesn't quite jive with the 20th century methods the Labor Department uses to collect this data. That's why we like to focus on the labor force participation rate. That's the percentage of Americans who could be in the workforce that are actually working. That number remains stuck at 61.7%, which is historically low and lower than the pre-pandemic levels of around 63%. Let's get set up for another busy week ahead. How stuck is the global supply chain? We'll get a better look when the Logistics Managers Index is released on Monday. It measures, as you can imagine, logistics activity across the country based on a survey of supply chain professionals. Any reading above 70 indicates significant expansion, and October clocked in at 72.6. We know November was stuffed as well, but is the supply chain bottleneck easing? How are all the big spenders out there? We'll get a preliminary reading on the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index for the month of December on Friday. Last month, the index hit a 10-year low on consumer concerns about inflation, with one in four Americans surveyed saying that rising prices had impacted their quality of life. Spending has remained strong, but Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales were much lower than forecasts. With concerns about the Omicron variant spreading, some economists think the impact could be deflationary if we enter another period of restriction economic activity, how fast things change. And what's the latest in the Great Resignation? The U.S. Department of Labor will release its Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, or the JOLT Survey, for the month of October on Thursday. The survey measures job vacancies and the so-called quits rate. In September, the number of Americans who left their jobs had soared to a record high of 10.4 million, while job openings in the U.S. remain near all-time highs. 4.4 million Americans straight up quit their job that month, despite rising wages across most sectors. And keep your eyes and ears open around central banks for the next couple of weeks. Fed Chair Jerome Powell may have surprised a few people last week when he said the Fed will step up its efforts to reduce the amount of government bonds it's been buying every month, aka speed up the tapering. Apparently, inflation is running a little hotter and a little longer than the Fed would like. A few Fed governors are also calling for several interest rate hikes in early 2022, which may have put the scare into tech stocks. We have an FOMC meeting coming up next week, beginning on the 14th. So expect the chatter to get louder this week. A dozen or so central banks around the world are due to hold meetings on interest rates this week. Canada, Australia, India, and Brazil, just to name a few. The Banco Central do Brasil may deliver a 1.5% rate increase. That would be the second straight hike of that size, and it would bring Brazil's interest rates to a staggering 9.25%. And there's still a few earnings reports worth paying attention to this week, including GameStop. That stock is down 50% from its recent highs, but it's still up more than 800% this year. Lululemon, Box, Chewy, and Costco are also among companies that will hand in their earnings report cards. You can call it a fad. You can call it the tulip mania of the 21st century. You can call it fake money in a dystopian world, but you can't deny that cryptocurrency is here as an asset class. It doesn't look or act like the fiat currencies many of us grew up on, but maybe that's because it's a little smarter than many of those. We used to trade shells, beads, and spices, so it wouldn't be hard to outsmart our antiquated forms of legal tender. And it's not just on the fringes anymore. Some of the largest and legendary financial institutions, retailers, payment processors, 
and credit card companies are making it available to their clients for investing, trading, banking, and payments. The total market cap of all cryptocurrencies is more than $2.5 trillion. And while that's still a fraction of the market values of all currency stocks and other assets, it can't be ignored and it's got a lot of room to run. It also has true believers and some of them we need to listen to closely when they preach. One of them is Rick Edelman, a person who I consider to be in the Investing Education Hall of Fame. I like to call him the investor's best friend because he has been giving sage advice to generations of investors for decades. And he's here with us this week on The Express. Welcome, Rick. Caleb, it's such an honor to be with you. Always a pleasure, my friend. Good to see you. And you're now leading the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, a little bit of a departure from your days advising clients and companies on traditional retirement and investing plans. Tell us about DACFP and why you're so fired up about it. It's a lot of fun, though, of what I'm doing these days. As you know, I announced back in June of 2021 that I was leaving Edelman Financial Engines, the company that my wife and I established 36 years ago, now the largest investment advisory firm in the country, about $300 billion in assets under management. We left that firm and we are now launching our own company and it's this, uh, DACFP, we call it, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, along with a new radio show and some other media activities. DACFP was born about three years ago, almost four years now. The reason I created DACFP is that as a financial advisor, My goal has always been to help my clients figure out where we're going, what's what's in front of us, what's the future, and let's make the investment decisions today that will prosper in that future. Let's go to where we're headed, not focus on the past. Too many people use investment strategies that were successful back in the 80s and 90s. Well, that's old news. We've got to focus on what's ahead of us. And I was first exposed to Bitcoin back in 2012. Didn't make a lot of sense to me, but I did a lot of research, spent a lot of time with technologists looking at this new technology and innovative aspect. And what we discovered is that this is the biggest commercial innovation since the invention of the internet back in the mid-90s. This is a big deal. It is transforming commerce on a global basis. And it represents the biggest and best investment opportunity since then. But most investment advisors are unfamiliar with this aspect, and most investors and consumers themselves don't realize it because it looks weird. I mean, it doesn't have anything in common with anything we know, not stocks, not bonds or real estate, gold, oil and gas, precious metal. It doesn't look like anything we're familiar with. You got coins named after dogs in in this world. It's insane. And there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of nonsense, just like there is in any frothy environment. But you get through all that nonsense, there is a lot of there there. This technology is being developed by some very serious people with some very serious money and a lot of smarts, backed by the biggest financial institutions in the world. Virtually every bank in the world is developing blockchain technology. Every government in the world is working on developing a government digital currency. Our own Federal Reserve will have one within a few years. Every government around the world will. Cash is gone. You're not even going to see it by 2030. It'll be eliminated, the paper anyway, replaced by digital money. So this is something people need to be paying attention to. And that's why I created DACFP, to serve as an educational organization, to teach financial advisors about the technology, the investment opportunities, understanding compliance, regulation, taxation, so they can better serve their clients in their investment strategies. Yeah, It starts with education. You've done that your whole career. And folks, 
And we're talking about decades on the radio, speaking uh, at events, your blogs, your books, etc. So it's not like you just woke up to the fact that this was a potentially a viable asset class. And I know you do your homework more than anybody out there in the industry. So if you're serious about it, people have to take it seriously. But you know, I'm steeped in this and a lot of our listeners are. They'll remember that we had Sunanya Tuteja from the Federal Reserve. She's the one who's probably being tasked with helping create that digital currency. At the same time, a lot of folks couldn't explain it, you know, to their kids, to their friends, to their parents. I got 80-year-old parents and I try. You have such a great way of explaining just the basics here. Give us blockchain in its most basic uh, essence as you explain it. And then I'm going to ask you to do Bitcoin. So we're all on the same page because it's unforgettable the way that you talk about it. Well, I appreciate that, Caleb. And, and yes, Anana is wonderful, the chief innovation officer at the Fed, good friend of mine. And she's helping the Fed figure all this stuff out. It's real simple. You know, it's not as complicated as it first appears. A lot of folks try to make it complicated or normally if someone gives you a complicated answer, it means they really don't understand it themselves. They're just faking their way through it. Amen. So it's, it's not that complicated. And to understand what the blockchain is, to understand that technology, let's understand the alternative because the alternative is something you know very well. Your checkbook. Your checkbook is a ledger. A ledger is a place where you write down income and expenses. You would just keep a record of your transactions. That's what your checkbook does. That's what a ledger is. Your Excel spreadsheet that you use every day, that's a ledger too. Every cell in your spreadsheet has data in it. You put in the numbers and you control that Excel spreadsheet. You control your checkbook. You invented it, you created it, you have access to it, you enter the data, you can erase the data, you can change the data, you can share that ledger with somebody else if you want, but you have to give them permission. And the person you give permission to see your spreadsheet, if you email them a copy of your Excel spreadsheet, they have to wonder, did you send them the original or did you make a copy with fake data? We've heard of cooking the books, right? Two sets of books. Al Capone went to prison for that. So the problem with ledgers is that we don't trust them. You know, you could send me your ledger, but I'm going to hire an auditor to make sure that the data you gave me is legitimate. And this is why there are lots of accountants and auditors and the IRS all verifying the data because the data can be changed, deleted, altered, copied, etc. Along comes blockchain. Instead of being a private ledger controlled by a single person or a single company, what we call a centralized ledger, instead of that, blockchain is decentralized. You take your Excel spreadsheet, you put it on the internet where it's available for everybody in the world to see. Anybody can put data on the ledger. You can put data into that blockchain spreadsheet. Once the data is there, it gets cryptographically verified, proven that the data is legitimate. For example, here's a copy of the deed to my house and I own the deed. Once that data is verified, it becomes permanent. Anybody can look, but nobody can touch. You can't change it, copy it, delete it, or duplicate it. And as a result of that, it becomes cryptographically proven, authenticated. We no longer have to rely on trust. It's free. It's transparent. It's fast. And this is why it's so transformative and why JP Morgan just said a month ago that blockchain technology is going to save banks $120 billion a year. 
because it's so much easier and cheaper to do business using the blockchain. And if folks think about wire transfers and how important that is, especially around the world, not as much here in the US, but around the world, that is the way money moves. That's a lot. There's a lot of middlemen in there gumming up or creating friction. The thing about blockchain and the coins and the tokens and the digital currencies that I'll trade on it is you eliminate a lot of that, right? It, it's absolutely right, Caleb. You, you've cited one really good example of the commercial benefit of all of this. It's like, what's the big deal? It's, as you said, it's called transmittals, moving money from one country to another. Big businesses do it every day, but so do millions of people. Think about folks who are living in the United States, immigrants. They came from Central or South America for economic opportunity, where the land streets paved with gold. And they come here for jobs. They left their families back home. So every month they send money back to mom in the old country. My grandmother used to talk about doing that when she was a young girl emigrating to the U.S. She sent money back to her parents in Russia. So this is common. It's about a, a trillion dollars a year that gets moved by people sending money back home under the world's financial system. It's called SWIFT. We all use the SWIFT system. It's how our banks intermingle around the world. It takes five days and costs about six and a half percent to move money from one country to another. With Bitcoin using blockchain technology, it takes 10 minutes and it's virtually free. The cat is out of the bag. The horse has left the barn. Pick your analogy. This is real. More and more banks, institutional investing investors, credit card companies, payment processors. My financial advisor is now offering this to me. I can really get this anywhere I want. At the same time, there are so many people that don't have the awareness of it. Give us a sense of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is kind of like the, the big whale in the, in the pool here. Where does Bitcoin sit above all this? And is this because it's the most widely adopted? Explain it to us. So we talked about blockchain. Picture blockchain as being the highway. Bitcoin is the car. So the reason that blockchain was invented was to allow Bitcoin to operate. You know, having a car doesn't do you a lot of good if there aren't any good roads to drive it on. So blockchain is the basis Bitcoin is the, that's the investment opportunity. So what is Bitcoin? Very simply, it's digital money. The best way to you know, understand it, as we talked about, is transmittals. On your telephone, just like you can send somebody an email and you can send an Excel spreadsheet attachment in the email, you can send money in an email. And the attachment is Bitcoin because you can't send dollars. Dollars are you know, the paper in your pocket. You can't send dollars over the internet. So we invented Bitcoin as a substitute form of digital money that you can send in an email that you can send from one person to another anywhere in the world 24-7. Well, why do we need Bitcoin now? Why, why is that necessary? Well, picture a casino. If you want to play blackjack, they won't let you play with dollars. They make you take your dollars and turn them into casino chips. And you play with the chips. And when you're done playing, you turn them back to dollars. If you want to go to vacation in Europe, you can't spend your dollars in Europe. They make you trade them for euros. And when you come home, you trade the euros back to dollars. It's just the nomenclature. So if you want to move money around the world digitally, you got to turn your dollars into Bitcoins, move the Bitcoins around the world, and then move them back into the local currency. So it's basically that simple. It's just the format. It's, you know what it's like, Caleb? It's like airline miles. Airline miles are digital money. We've been using those for decades. And 
you can transfer your digital miles, your airline miles, you can convert them into cash. You can use them not just to buy airline seats, but hotels and car rentals. You can convert them into gift cards so you can spend the money at Amazon. Airline miles are digital money. Bitcoin, digital money. That's something my parents can totally understand. So at the same time, and this is the argument that goes round and around and around, it's not Bitcoin is not backed by anything like the dollar. It's not a store of value. You hear this all the time. It's not backed by gold. It is worth what the next person thinks it's worth, who's willing to buy it. But at the same time, we can trade our Bitcoin for dollars. We do it all the time. Yes. And in fact, the dollar is the same thing. And so is gold. The US dollar is not backed by anything. It used to be backed by gold, but we eliminated that in 1971. We got off the gold standard. Uh, a process that took 50 years. So the, the dollar is only worth what you and I say it's worth. Gold is only worth what you and I say it's worth. That's true of any asset. It is always based on consumer demand, supply and demand, consumer confidence, and that's all there is to it. So the fact that Bitcoin isn't backed by anything, so what? Neither is anything else. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the altcoins because people offer, you know, and I get it, and it's the, the media is responsible for, for this and, and uh, present company included, but it's the price volatility and the FOMO of watching Bitcoin go from $2 to 60000 or wherever it is today that folks are just astounded by and can't believe in. So there's that the price noise that we see, and then there's the coins that we hear about that come out of nowhere. They're kind of jokes, but they end up racking up these incredible returns. Help us understand what some of the altcoins are and what some of the joke coins are. So let's let's talk about two different conversations here because you raised very important issues. One is price volatility. Second are all these coins that exist. Let's talk about price volatility first. We have seen Bitcoin rise incredibly high in value and crash five times. It has had a crash of more than 50%. But again, it's a new emerging asset class. Go take a look at the stock charts of Amazon, Apple, Microsoft of the first 12 years that they were publicly traded stocks. And then compare those charts to the price history of Bitcoin, and you'll see they're identical. When Amazon and Microsoft and Apple were brand new, they were absurdly volatile. Massive market crashes in their early years as investors are trying to figure out what is this? What's going on? What's the future? Will it work? Only after it becomes a mature multi-trillion dollar industry does the price begin to settle down. And we're expecting something similar in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is acting like most startups act. Absurd volatility because there are not very many people involved. And when there are not very many people involved, you get all kinds of sentiment changes that cause price volatility to exist. Don't let volatility scare you. And oh, by the way, just as an aside, here's a fun fact. In 2020, one third of the S&P 500 was more volatile than Bitcoin. So if you're willing to invest in stocks, despite their volatility, you should be willing to invest in digital assets too. What's so interesting, Rick, is that Bitcoin trades 24-7, 365. There is no closing and opening bell. This is a market that's moving constantly. So the fact that it's not even more volatile is shocking to me sometimes, just given how fast and how much it's traded and where it's traded. That's a really good point. Now let's talk about all the other coins, because that's equally important. You know, we talked about Bitcoin and it makes sense. If you want to move money through an email, you need a digital form of money. Okay, Bitcoin makes sense. Why do we need 10,000 of other coins? Why are all these others out there? 
Well, first of all, the overwhelming majority of them, probably 9,900, are going to disappear. They're fads. They are me too copycats. Entrepreneurs trying to capitalize on the hype to make a quick buck. They're not serious. But there are two coins in particular that are worth talking about. The first one is Ethereum, Ether. The second one is Dogecoin. Let's talk about them one by one. We talked about Bitcoin. I want to send you money. I sell and send it to you digitally through the internet. So I send you my Bitcoin. Fast, secure, free. Sounds great. There's only one problem with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is dumb. When I send you the Bitcoin, I might not want you to get it, at least not right away. I might want you to get the money I'm sending you only when you do something in exchange, like send me concert tickets or give me the deed to your house because I'm sending you money to buy your house or, to, or, or only if somebody wins a sporting event or an election or only if the temperature reaches a certain level or only if it rains. In other words, I only want you to have my money if you fulfill an obligation, an if-then scenario. This is also called a contract. Can you think of any businesses that use contracts? Just a few. This is how the world works. We make legal agreements with each other. And Ethereum is called smart contracts. Whereas Bitcoin gets the money as soon as you hit the enter button, Ethereum has the money to transfer only upon the fulfillment of the contract. You can program the money. That's why they also call it programmable money. You can program it to transfer only when things happen. This is why so many people are excited about Ethereum, including me, because it has so much use in business as an online digital contract. So that's a legitimate reason for a coin. It has a, a use that Bitcoin doesn't serve and explains why you have more than one pair of shoes in your closet, some for jogging and some for going to the opera. You have Bitcoin for instant movement of money, Ethereum for contract movement of money. Makes sense. What about Dogecoin? This is the dark side of digital money. A few years ago, a couple of computer programmers, one at Adobe, another one at HP, thought Bitcoin was absurd. This is 2013. Thought Bitcoin was ridiculous. Thought it was a joke. And to prove their point, as a satire, they invented Dogecoin. They actually called it Doggy Coin. They misspelled Doggy, D-O-G-E. Dog E, get it? So they invented this coin, worthless, no purpose, as a joke that anybody can invent digital money. Never occurred to them that anybody would buy this worthless coin. When they released it, they announced, this is a joke. It is satire. Neither one of them own Dogecoin. Other people started buying it anyway. Elon Musk started tweeting about it. And all of a sudden, it's got millions of people around the world buying this. And I am very concerned about it because it has no legitimate use in commerce. There is no business case for Dogecoin. It was just a joke. To me, it's nothing more than a pet rock, a digital pet rock. It's a fad. 
it's eventually people are going to lose interest in it because it has no legitimate use. And I think people are buying it, not really knowing what it is they're buying. And there's going to be a lot of people who get hurt as a result of this. Tulip mania had the same problems. Internet stock mania had the same problems. You're going to see it in every market and every market mania. Real quick, just for the couple of minutes we have left, let's say, Rick, like what happened to me, my financial advisor says, hey, we are launching now access to cryptocurrencies if you're interested. What questions should I be asking my my financial advisor, if I'm being offered those, you know, the, the ability to invest in this asset class. The very same questions you ask about any other investment. What are the fees? Is it liquid? Meaning, can I sell it at any time? Many of these investments lock up your money, sometimes for 10 years. So is it liquid? Can I sell at any time? And if I sell, are there any surrender charges or exit fees that I have to pay? What's the level of risk? Where is my digital coin? If you're going to sell me Bitcoin, where are you storing it? It's called custody. You know, when you buy stocks and bonds and mutual funds and ETFs, that's called custody too. And they're holding on to your securities for you. Where are you going to hold my digital money? Who's the custodian and what are the safeguards they're using? And oh, by the way, if you're telling me to buy this, did you buy it? Do you personally own this too? Because I want to know if you're just selling me something to make a commission or if you're actually telling me to do something because as a fiduciary, it's in my best interest. So much valuable information uh, here. And on DACFP.com, folks, check out the webinars there. Rick and I did one on Investopedia recently. I think that's up on YouTube right now. But check out uh, Rick's blog, tremendous blog. And tell us about the relaunch of the radio show. When can we expect that and where can we find you? Starting uh, New Year's weekend, 2022, we're launching our brand new radio show. I've been on the air for 30 years with the Rick Edelman Show. That show ends the end of 2021, and I'm launching for 2022 a brand new radio show, same radio station, same day part, called The Truth About Your Future with Rick Edelman, with a big focus on digital assets, as well as exponential technologies, as well as exponential technologies, all the investment theses you need to be focusing on to help you achieve financial security. So we're really very excited about it. And it debuts uh, on New Year's weekend. We've got podcasts and video casts on a weekly basis as well. You can get all of that info at the TAFE. That's the T-A-Y-F. Nobody's cranking the content like you and skating to where the puck is going. Rick, we're going to go out on this because we ask all our guests this. What's your favorite investing term of all time? Which one just rings true to you and, and makes you just a believer in what you do? Can I say three? Absolutely. Diversification, dollar cost averaging, and rebalancing. Amen. Amen. Those are three great terms. And you are the investor's best friend, Rick Edelman, the founder of the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals. So good to have you on The Express, my friend. Thank you, Caleb. Always good to be with you. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Mark in Tucson, Arizona. That's two for two for Arizona in the past couple of weeks. Mark suggests DeFi or decentralized finance for this week's term. And we like that suggestion, especially given our convo with Rick Edelman. Well, according to my favorite website, DeFi or decentralized finance is a system by which financial products become available on a public decentralized blockchain network that makes them open for anyone to use rather than going through middlemen like banks or brokerages. Unlike a bank or brokerage account, a government-issued ID, social security number, or proof of address is not necessary to use DeFi. More specifically, DeFi refers to a system by which software written on blockchains makes it possible for buyers, sellers, lenders, and borrowers to interact peer-to-peer -peer 
or with a strictly software-based middleman rather than a company or institution which would facilitate the transaction. You remember how Rick and I were talking about friction across wire transfers and the global banking system costing us hundreds of billions of dollars every year? Well, DeFi aims to destroy that, which is why banks are sprinting to develop their own blockchain technology. Read more about DeFi and the blockchain on Investopedia and how they could disrupt not just the banking industry, but everything from art to real estate and beyond. It's coming. Good suggestion, Mark. Socks are on the way to you in Tucson, Arizona, and we'd like to see you sporting those on your next dinner date out to Miniditos on the south side of town. Great enchiladas there. We're going to let Alan Greenspan take us out this week. Here's the former Fed chair mentioning those infamous words, irrational exuberance, for the first time back in 1996 at a speech to the American Enterprise Institute. On re-listen, it's interesting to hear the context in which the former Fed chair said those words. He wasn't saying that investors were falling victim to irrational exuberance per se, but if they did, he said, it wasn't the Fed's responsibility to do anything about it to cool a potential meltdown in the capital markets. Well, we got one a year later in 1999 when the dot-com bubble burst. And what did Greenspan's Fed do? Slashed interest rates to prime a recovery in stocks. It worked. How do we know when irrational exuberance has unduly escalated asset values, which then become subject to unexpected and prolonged contractions as they have in Japan over the past decade. And how do we factor that assessment into monetary policy? We as central bankers need not be concerned if a collapsing financial asset bubble does not threaten to impair the real economy its production, jobs, and price stability. Hold your head this week. It's going to be another bumpy one, and we don't get irrationally exuberant. We got this, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. Mm-hmm.